0: The Talk and Golf Network is proudly supported by the Golf Society. Shop designer golf apparel, shoes, and accessories from the world's most exclusive and best golf brands online at www.thegolfsociety.com.au forward slash Talk Golf. I could take out of my life everything except my experiences. At St. Andrews, and I still have a rich, full life. But the last tee shot I hit was more like it, that one in the playoff. Against Barton and Ray. That's right.
1: And the best thing to win the Masters, you, you will be here forever, as long as you are still alive. So that's the best thing. I'm very happy. Welcome to episode 38 of the Talking Golf History Podcast, the history of Harry Colt. Few, if any, golf course architects have left their mark on the game like Henry Chaplin Colt. For his influence extended beyond the landscapes of some of the greatest golf courses in the world, he created a profession of golf design. Breaking free from the history of golf professionals designing golf courses, Harry Colt, Along with his classmate, John Lowe, and like-minded Victorian golfers, forged a path that truly started the golden age of golf design. And now, a little bit about our guest. Adam is a golf writer and a historian. Educated at Oxford University, he was a business and technology journalist for many years before founding the magazine Golf Course Architecture in 2005. He writes for many golf magazines across the world, including Golf World, Golf Monthly, Lynx, and Golf Course Management, and has contributed to BBC, CNN, and Channel 4 on Golf Development Matters. He is currently at work on a comprehensive biography on the golf course architect, Harry Colt. He has a very special interest in the evolution of golf design from 1900 to 1930, the golden age of design. And the course is built during that period and has conducted extensive research on the work of key Golden Age designers such as Colt, Hugh Allison, Herbert Fowler, and Tom Simpson. He assisted with the recreation of old Tom Morris's Askernish links in Scotland and has just been made an honorary lifetime member of the club and is working as a historical advisor on a number of golf course renovation and restoration projects. Join us today on episode 37 of the Talking Golf History Podcast is the founder of the magazine Golf Course Architecture, Adam Lawrence. Adam, thank you so much for joining us on the show.
0: No problem, Connor. be great to be here.
1: I I was wondering if we could jump into your role in the recently rediscovered links of Askernish. I I know this isn't Harry Colt. It's really old Tom Morris, but uh, (laughs) I I find it extremely fascinating. I mean, it's kind of like history's lost and found, isn't it?
0: It is a cool story. I, it's certainly the, the I, I've done a number of cool things in the fifteen years I've been running the UCA magazine, but Askinich is the, cool, the coolest without a doubt. Um, it was early two thousand six, and I got a call from Martin Ebert, um, and Martin had um, been asked by Gordon Irvin to go with him up to South Uist in the Hebrides to um, basically try and find these golf holes on this old lost golf course and he briefed me as well as he could do but I didn't really know what to expect so I flew up to Glasgow uh, one, early one morning in March 2006 Martin Gordon and Chris Haspel who at the time was in Denmark um, and who who then later became the course manager at Castle Stewart when it opened, um, and has since been involved with the co- with the attempt to build the core cool Links project um, near Old Dornock. Anyway, the four of us met at Glasgow Airport, where I must tell you it was snowing. We got we got on this little plane that takes you up to the islands, uh, maybe in 20 seats or something like that, and we flew up to Penbecula, which is the island from South U.S. and is linked to it by Causeway. And so it's the nearest airport basically. And of course it's a tiny 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 little airport, just a little a little shack is the terminal and they get to three or four of these little prop prop plane flights a day uh, and they're all on sort of um, regional assistance subsidies, to try to keep the, the communities connected. And we were met at the airport by this big Scottish guy called Ralph Thompson, who lived on the island for a long time, and he was at the time the chairman of the golf club. Um, And Ralph sort of bundled us into his car and took us down to down to the the links, uh, where there was basically nothing except um, a little, very very basic nine hole course with barbed wire around the greens to keep to keep the cattle and the sheep off (laughs) the greens.
1: I love it. It's a different kind of hazard, right?
0: Oh, very much so. Yeah, <laughs> um, and we so sort of drove out. It, it was yeah. Oh, I, I should have said it was snowing in Glasgow, but as we went as we went northwest in the plane, the, the the weather cleared, um, and we as we went over the outer sky, the clouds broke, and when we came into Mecca it was perfect sunlight. It was very very cold because it was early March and you were a long way north there, but it was most beautiful early spring uh, late winter day, call it what you like um, freezing cold but totally clear, not clouded sky for the two days we were there and Ralph drove us out onto on, onto the links and we're sort of bouncing around this fairly fairly flat trend, thinking well this isn't this isn't stunning, you know, it's nice but it's not stunning and he parks at the base of a dune, which is, as it turns out, is a seawall dune, um, and gets out and says, right, this is what you need, This is what you need to see. And he takes us to this, to the edge of this dune, where there's maybe a 30 or 40 foot drop into this valley. And this amazing valley, which is now the seventh hole, is sat there in front of us. And beyond it, we can see this huge and massive range of enormous dunes, uh, almost as far as the eye can see, and we started walking down there, Martin said to me, quietly, well this has suddenly become the most exciting project on the books, and we spent the next two days tramping through those dunes, looking for golf holes, looking for evidence of golf holes. Uh, there are some things we found that, 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 if they weren't original greens, they look down like it. But you must realise that the original course was built privately for the estate in 1891 um, and would therefore really have been, you know, the classic stakes and the Sunday afternoon thing. Right. And would probably also have, been, also have been very short. You know, it was, they weren't building a championship course back then. Um, even they weren't even building 1890s championship course back then. So you know, it clearly isn't. It isn't a, a direct replica of what Tom built. But we 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 found a routing over the course of mostly over the course of the first day.
1: Just by walking it. Just by just by just by walking. Yeah. Looking
0: for looking for features. Yeah. Tell-tale very tell-tale sides. style. Yeah, very looking for features, looking for evidence of greens, lo- locations for tees.
1: What is that like? I mean, you're walking in the footsteps of old Tom Morris, essentially. Uh, it's pretty cool,
0: right? Um, I, 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 there's one green out there which is the fifteenth hole, um, which Brett Hochstein, the architect, um, told me was his favorite green on the golf course which I was a bit pleased about because I, 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 I found that particularly green site. Um, and I also made it three on it the first time I played the hole. Yeah, nice. It, it, it being a power four, um, which is a really fabulous punch ball green. You then get to the 16th, which is it's got, the hall is called Old Tom's Pulpit. And the green, is, the green is sort of set up on top of a dune. And there's a tiny, tiny plateau at the front, and then it falls down into a larger plateau at the back and uh, it really is like a rampart you know you you, you, you know the redan obviously is named after a, um for a, 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 a Crimean war fortification Well, yeah. this really looks like really does look like a fortification <laughs> That's amazing. it's 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 a very 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 special place i've been looking at they 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 just recently made me life member i'm um, I'm, I'm more honored about that than almost anything else I've ever done in my life. Yeah, so.
1: that was just recently, right? In the last week or so. Uh, last month. Yeah, it's unbelievable. That's f- fantastic. Congratulations. Thank you. I, I, I had to get you into that. Maybe we come back and we'll do another podcast just on Askovich because <laughs> I think you know, I, I when I when you sent me over your bio, I guess I didn't I never I didn't connect the two. And I at,
0: I'm always happy to talk about Askovich. Yeah, go it's on, like an
1: archaeological dig of our time.
0: It kind of is, yeah. Um not literally. And and, and actually I mean sure. there are there are examples of course restorations which literally were archaeological digs. Um I forget the whole, but um Los Angeles Country Club's North course. Yeah. Where Gil Hans and his crew dug down literally about six feet before they found the original sand um that was the original green.
1: Really? Interesting.
0: Yeah. It's short four. I forget which call it is. Um, but you know, that, that literally is golf archaeology. Yeah. Um, this, this is slightly less literal, but, but, but it's, the same, it's the same sort of vibe, certainly.
1: All right. We're going to start in. I'm kind of amazed. I'm kind of knocked off right off the bat. Hope you listeners uh, can put your eyeballs back in your heads as we start. Um, Adam, as you know, I've dedicated season two of the Talking Golf History podcast to the history of the greatest golf course architects. So far this season, we've explored Donald Ross with Bradley Klein, Seth Rayner with Anthony Piappi, and Sean Tully just joined us past month uh, to discuss Dr. Alistair McKenzie. Hmm. Now, I must say, it's a little bit unusual when I look for historians to cover a subject uh, that all fingers point in the same direction, which was the (laughs) case for Harry Colt when all fingers pointed to you. Um, Well... Yeah, go ahead.
0: um my, 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 my I'm, as, as you know, I'm working on a biography of Colt at the moment. Um, my co-author Paul Turner would be um, just as good, just as good in this in this case, but uh, Paul has less time to, to do this kind of thing than I do because he's got real jobs. There.
1: Maybe you could share a little bit about your history with Harry Colt and how you decided to come upon writing a comprehensive book about him.
0: Well, you can't really be part of the golf community scene, whatever you like to call it in the UK and not have a lot of exposure to cult. you know, it, 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 it's very interesting that Colt and Donald Ross collaborated in 1913 on the build of the Old Elm course Old Elm, in, yeah. in, in, in Chicago, which they say we'll come back to at some stage because in many ways, although they are very different people with very different backgrounds, they, they had the same kind of role. In golf, in Britain and in America, they, Colt was the guy, the man who brought quality golf to the United Kingdom. I mean, to all, wherever you go, if you play a golf course that you didn't know in the UK, and you think, "Wow, this is better than I expected," odds are it's going to be a Colt course. Right. Uh, and the, the same is true. Obviously, there are there are more courses in the US, but you know the the likelihood of just stumbling on a Ross course out of out of the blue is 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 very is very high. I think.
1: When do you expect it to be completed? It's the worst question I can ask an author, right?
0: Yeah, I, 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 it, I, it should have been done a long time ago. I, I was, I, I was involved in a discussion about cult on Goth Writers a couple of weeks ago, and Tom Durk called me out and not having the book finished. He said, "Well, if you know, if, if somebody finished the book he was writing, we wouldn't, we wouldn't make cult-related mistakes." <laughs> and, and the truth is that I, you know I, we. I, Paul has been working on this thing for a long, long time. Um, well, I, I have been working on it for several years. Uh, I, the problem is, I have a day job, um, and I, I got I, I got going really well a couple of years ago, but then it just stopped um, for very personal reasons. My life went to hell, yeah. um, and and um, I really haven't been. Able to get much written now. My life is, my life is great, so if anything is too good, too goods which which is why I'm probably not getting it written at the moment. But but I'm I am trying. Or do, do, I'm trying to use this lockdown period to uh, make some significant progress in the writing.
1: Yeah, yeah, it's, it, that's the one good thing that's come out of this, right?
0: Well, yeah. Let me put it this way: I originally said um, I would like to launch at the Open last year at Port Rush. Um, because obviously Portrush was Colt's, in many ways, Colt's greatest work. Um, it's also the course that gave the book its title. Um, it, would have been, it would have been perfect to launch that week, but that was a no-no. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Sometimes life interferes. Um, let's yes, jump. Let's course. jump into the history of Harry Colt. What can you tell us about the man before the architect? Well.
0: So, Colt was, in many ways, a fairly typical example of the Victorian upper middle class. You know, his father was a very successful, a successful solicitor uh, who became a barrister. Uh, so, you know, a successful lawyer. Um, Colt was the youngest of six children, and his father actually died when he was only two. Um, he He grew up he was born in London but when his father died his mother took the family to live in Malvern in the west of England not, not far from the Welsh border um, and that's where he discovered golf as a teenager the Worcestershire Golf Club uh, which was founded in 1879 uh, was where he learned he to play and I've been to Worcestershire and found the evidence of Colt the junior in their minute books, you know, sort of. Oh wow! You, 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 he sort of appears in about 1887 or something like that. 86, um, well, handicap handicap 18 or whatever. Um, and all of a sudden, he starts winning these competitions, and this, his handicap starts going falling like a stone. Um, so by the time he he left university a few years a few years after that, he was a you know, a plus handicap man or one of the elite elite amateur golfers of the country. So, um, he he went to school at um, Moncton Coombe, which is which is uh, an evangelical Christian private school, uh, which is interesting because the woman he married was a Catholic. So that must have been uh, kind of a, uh, a a bit of a stir at the time. Um, and he then went up, went up to um, Clare College in Cambridge in 1887, uh, where he read law, as you know, because he was the son of a lawyer, and his elder brother was a lawyer as well. Um, he graduated in 1890. He qualified as a solicitor in 1891, and uh, and he ended and he ended up um, as a, in 1894 as a newly married man and his sister in the town of Hastings on the, on the south, south coast of Sussex, um, which very coincidentally was uh, not far from the Rye Golf Club, which had just literally been founded a month before he got to town. And as, as, as is fairly well known, he was involved in not the original creation of Rye, but the, Rye was rebuilt after its first year um, by Colt and by Douglas Rolland, the club pro. Do we know why? Um, um, just, just that it was unsatisfactory. You know, yeah. they, 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 they knew Too they, knew and they had a great, they knew they had a great piece of ground, um, and there are, you know, there's a lot of stuff in the earliest, in, in the very, very early writings about rice. saying, go, oh, no artificial bunkers will be needed, and blah, blah, blah. And then Colton Roland actually built quite a lot of bunkers, which clearly improved on the original golf course
1: was that colt's first design yes obviously and do we know how he how did he get picked for that i mean how do
0: what uh, well i i mean how did he get picked for it yeah. i i think he, he he just fell into it
1: just um, asserted he, himself
0: well so roland the club pro who was an interesting man a scotsman who who um, couldn't go to Scotland because he'd basically jumped bail in a divorce case. <laughs> um,
1: Good story there.
0: Uh, uh, yeah, I know. And Roland, uh, he, he, interestingly, was second in an op- in the Open before he had to leave Scotland and then didn't play the Open for about nine years until he was first played in England at St. George's um, when he was second again. So one, one does wonder what, what he would have achieved if he'd actually been able Absolutely. to play – yeah. in inter- the intervening years. Anyway, so Roland had been the pro at Worcestershire, at Malvern, when Colt was a, a junior there, and he sort of became his mentor. Um, and clearly Colt had had something to do with him being recruited as a professional at Rye. Uh, and uh, and Roland was a man on the, on the scene, had there, he was there full time. So he was clearly going to do a lot of the work with... With with laying out the revised golf course, and so he and Colt clearly did it, Basically, did it between them.
1: Probably more of the norm back in those days, where you'd have professionals laying out golf courses. Obviously, old time Moore yes, I mean, setting I mean, the mould. I mean, I mean, yeah,
0: I mean absolutely, absolutely, that's true. I mean, if you think about it, the first, this is what one of the, one of the themes of the book is that effectively creates some professional golf course architecture. Um, there, before him, there there are no there are no golf architects. There are professionals who will lay out the golf course for you. Uh, Willie Park, in the creation of Sunningdale, undercoming 1900, goes a lot further towards doing what we would now describe as golf architecture. Right. And Herbert Fowler, is at the same sort of time, Walter Heath as well. But it's only when it's only in about 97, one hundred and seven, when Colt becomes really active as a designer, that you have somebody who is basically paid, paid to design golf courses and do nothing else.
1: You know, I've heard two things. I've heard Harry Harry Colt basically called the first modern golf course architect, but I've also heard him called the father of golf course architecture. Do you consider both of those to be fair? I think both of those are probably true.
0: Yeah, you know, one of the one of the very interesting
1: things is how
0: small the world of golf was at that at that period, um, and 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 how Colt became the go to man in Edward in England to talk about golf design. Um, he 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 became secretary at Sunningdale in 1901. Uh, the founding secretary of the golf club. Uh, and he immediately basically set to doing quite a lot of alteration to Park's design and, and I think what's not been quite understood until now is just how important that work was in establishing himself sorry establishing his reputation as the, as the go-to guy on that because but we come it was only like 1907 when he started doing he started being asked to do other design work paid for work we know the we know for example that his first paid for work was in 1907 um advising ganton on some renov, on some renovations um he built his first new course was Lemmington County in 1908, uh, Northamptonshire County around the same time, Stoke Park just a bit after that. And it's quite well known that when Dr. Mackenzie wanted to design Aldley, the Aldley committee was sort of unsure about letting this un- this guy who had never done it before, letting him loose on their, on their would-be golf course. Yeah. So they they eventually said right okay you can do it but we're gonna have to call we want to call, and call an expert to review what you're doing and see if you're on the right track and the expert that they called him was Colt.
1: What um, year is this about?
0: This is 1908. What is very important um, and people don't haven't quite realized is that so Colt and Mackenzie met then and, and and Colt wrote about uh, staying in Mackenzie's house. Going into his consulting rooms, which he expected to be full of medical stuff, but were actually full of golf stuff. So, as I say, Colt was the independent expert who was asked by the committee to basically check out McKenzie, McKenzie's stuff. And he, he said, Yes, this is very good. You should go with it. What has been missed is that that was only Colt's third paying gig. Yeah, which is to say,
1: like, 19, just the year prior. Right? He's getting his first yeah, paid job he, in the very next year. So, it's, yeah, three jobs in, but it's one year from his first paid job, and he's the resident expert they're bringing in. That's fascinating.
0: Ex- exactly. Exactly. Um, which which shows you how small a world it was and how quickly everything was evolving, I think, um, at that time. It's also interesting to note that around the same time, Colt is designing Stoke Poges, and just after that, he's designing Windy Forest. Which he himself described as his least bad, uh, bad <laughs> golf course. His, his favorite that's course great, he ever designed. It's a his, great description.
1: Least bad.
0: Well, it's very, it's very English, you know. Absolutely, um, Colt. The, Colt was, yeah, you know, Colt was had a reputation of being a very sort of quiet and studious and serious English gentleman. Um, there's some quite interesting stuff from while he was at Cambridge that's That suggests a little bit otherwise, but but um, uh, but certainly you know he was he was a fairly uh, understated guy typically English in that respect, and that um, and so you 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 would you would never expect expect an English gentleman to come out going to going oh this is great this is fantastic I'm I'm the best you know it's it's the anti-Donald Trump, you know? Yeah, yeah, that's fair. Um, And so it's significant, clearly it's significant what Colt thought about, but it's also fairly characteristic that he would say it was my least bad course. You know.
1: Yeah. Did Colt have a vision for golf course architecture as a profession, or did it kind of evolve with him as a golf course designer? Like, did he see the idea of the firm or, you know... I, I, you tell me that on this one, but I, I, I kind of think of that period before Colt, and maybe this is unfair. In that same limelight as how uh, gentlemen golfers, I'm using quotation marks, um, looked at professionals, uh, professional golfers, which was it's not really a profession, you know they're 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 kind of a lesser seed than the rest of us, and here we have a barrister, a lawyer by trade, uh, and then of course at McKinsey a, a physician getting into golf course architecture. Did he have that vision or did it just happen, you know, that he was a golf addict that loved design and it, you know, became a profession, if you will.
0: It's very difficult to say. Um, I think that that there's no doubt that Colts took a definite decision to leave the law and get involved with golf.
1: Did he go cold turkey? Did he just drop? the law practice and go straight in there or was there, do we know if there was a transitional period?
0: No, no, no pretty much. Wow. Um, And it's it's quite interesting because I I have some research that shows that in the 1900, so actually let me just backtrack a little bit. Before Cole got the job at Sunningdale, he applied to be Secretary of the Royal Nations. Um, The RNA was hiring its its first professional secretary. Um, and he was shortlisted, and he put together um, a quite remarkable set of um, references, uh, including Arthur Balfour, who would go wow. on yeah. to be the Prime Minister the year later. Yeah. Uh, Herbert, uh, sorry, yeah. Horace Hutchinson, and any number of uh, of, of other big big guns. Uh, I have a copy of this. References, back, testimonials, back, and its quite the most remarkable thing.
1: Yeah,
0: um, just having those two names ma- is amazing. It makes it makes it makes me wonder how the hell they they send they they turn him down. Anyway, so Colt didn't get the RNA job, and then a year about a year later, he got the Sunningdale job. He went to work for Sunningdale on a salary of one hundred and fifty pounds a year. Now, the average lawyer in England in 1900 was earning 1500 pounds a year
1: whoa sacrifice
0: so so he took he must have taken basically 90% pay cut
1: oh my gosh it's good
0: to, go to Slingdale. now that tells you that tells you two things one is that he wasn't particularly motivated by money at the time two is that he had enough money he had private money you know, he had family money and but, but most mostly it tells you that he he wasn't he wasn't going to work at Sunday for the money. Um, he was doing it because he wanted to work in golf. Uh, now, now, obviously, the golf industry as it exists now didn't exist then. It was just really just starting to evolve. Um, paid The clubs were getting paid secretaries for the first time. Greenkeeping had, was just starting to exist as an independent profession. Um, architecture didn't really exist as an independent profession at that time. Blah blah blah. Yeah.
1: Um.
0: And so, so yes, he was clearly a trailblazer in that respect. To what extent did he know what he was doing? That's a very a, a very good question. We, we, you know, he uh, as I say, it, it's it's hard to know how. It's impossible to know in fact. How much of it was was predetermined and how much it was through um, a response to circumstance, but you know so he he creates the first he, in nineteen eight or thereabouts when he starts working with Hugh Allison as his assistant um they they they're doing it very informally Allison is working as secretary at stoke purges um, and they only they only create a firm. Um, after World War One, but but basically they, they, they are a design firm from Um The first the first that there was you know, before Fowler and Simpson, I guess, or before watching and Taylor and people like that. Um, then in 1914, he gets together with Frank with with, with George Franks and Claude Harris, who created the Franks Harris Brothers, which was the first golf contractor. Um he has from about nineteen hundred and nine an arrangement with certain seeds so that he promotes that he promotes their seeds on his um on his projects. Although interestingly he got his first American jobs via Sutton's rivals Carter's. Um so how that exactly how that worked I can't quite work out. <laughs> um Because, you know, so so his first big American job, which is a country club in Detroit, uh, he got because carters were there already, um, and they recommended him.
1: So it's a small world.
0: Yeah, exactly. It's a small world. He's at the forefront of it, and he's pioneering this world.
1: I always think of inspiration, you know, countless architects over history, or over the early history, perhaps, of golf course architecture as we know it today. Or inspired by old Tom Morris was there anyone that inspired Harry Colt from a design standpoint that,
0: that's very difficult to tell tell particularly I mean I, I think we can we, we can say that John Lowe yeah was that was my next question Lowe is very influential Lowe was at the same college in Cambridge as Colt although he he arrived just after Colt left so they must, but they must have got to know each other in the very early 1890s, and they were very good friends. Um,
1: and both had similar design philosophies, did they not? Well, absolutely.
0: If you if you read Lowe's um, section on course design in concerning golf, which is from 1903, so you know it's very very early. It, you know, it could have been written by Colt or Fowler or, or, or Simpson or any of those other early, early great architects. Um, I, I, Bob Crosby is working on a book about John Law at the moment. And he's, he's, yes, he yes, is. I'm excited about a, that a one. Yes. Yeah, me too. He's done, he's done a lot of great research on Law already. Um, and I'm really excited to read what he finds.
1: Yeah, I think that's one of the greatest things about this podcast is just connecting with other historians and, f- and hearing... Some of the overlap between your works, you know, be that, it's, a, you know, obviously well, Alistair McKenzie and uh, Colt McKenzie and Allison. And then we have uh, Lowe and uh, Harry Colt. I just, I mean, there's so many intertwining stories in this era, that early Victorian era of golf.
0: Well, you, you know, Connor kind of, is a small world. We, we really must remember that. Golf gets bigger after World War One. But before World War One, it really is a very, very small world. Um, and so, you know, you, you see there's the, the Oxford and Cambridge circle. You know, uh, um Colts, Alison Lowe, Arthur Croome, people like that. Um, then there's you know, Fowler and his circle. Um, Mackenzie in his circle and what have you. I should, I, it's it's ironic that, that that I've become a cult um guy because I Doctor Mackenzie and I went to the same school, so I should probably Traitor. I should probably, <laughs> I should probably, I should probably be writing on him, really.
1: Right. <laughs> I'm glad you are. I mean, there. I, I, to another point, there are very few Americans who. I'm sorry, there are quite a few Americans who know the names of Donald Ross and Mackenzie, and of course Pete Dye to my knowledge, very few Americans are are really aware of Harry Colt because of his extensive work in the United Kingdom. And yet, many consider Harry Colt to be the greatest golf course of architect of all time. Maybe you could share with the folks on this side of the pond who haven't had that experience of traveling over to England and Scotland, some of Harry Colt's best work throughout that area. Just to give him a, 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 a shine the light on some of his great work over there, that might open up their eyes. A lot of... One of
0: the things that makes Colt underrated, I think, is that a lot of his best work was not on... Bra- on you know, he, he didn't build courses like Cypress Point or Augusta sure. out of the blue. Obviously, he played a player who could roll at Pine Valley, but we can, we can come out to that if need, if need be. But much of his work... Was on all the courses, bringing uh, bringing them up to date. You know, so Rob Portrush, for example, uh, which I, I would probably say is his, was, goes down as his greatest work. Um, you know, Portrush existed before Colt was there. It didn't exist in the form it does now, but it existed. Um, similarly with Muirfield. Similarly with. High similarly with Lytham, similarly with something else, similarly with blah 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 blah. Um, you know, any any number of golf courses. Um, obviously, if you if you're in the London, London area and you play half dozen of, of the best courses around there, then you probably run across quite a run across quite a lot of colts, whether it be at St George's Hill or at Tandridge or. Um, and or, or or indeed any other in any of the other places which he which he was involved with around that around that area. Um, if you if you play on the old on the old links, then it's very likely that Cole would have been there at some point. To what degree? Well, it varies. You know, he was he was at St George's, he was at Hoylake, he was at. Um, uh, he was at Royal Lytham, He was at Muirfield. He was at Ganton. He was at Trun, Not not Truman, sorry. Um, but blah 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 blah. Yeah. Um, but they don't necessarily go down to history as Colt causes because he didn't originally design them. So that's one of the one of the things that people need to be aware of with Colt.
1: How does Harry Colt make his mark on those landscapes? Those existing golf courses that were routed prior, how does he add to the landscape of that architecture? What does he bring to the picture at those courses that they were lacking? So,
0: so for example, at Port Rush, he basically totally redesigned he, – he, he completely redesigns the golf course. Um, you know, he, he, he takes in new land. Uh, he changes the routing pretty, pretty much entirely. Um, at Muirfield he didn't change the routing entirely the routing the famous sort of figure eight, figure of 8 routing was actually a Tom Morris creation but Colts expanded that greatly by taking a lot of extra land and and, and again basically the course that we, we see nowadays is Colts and you know again is 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 another example of a golf course that was basically completely re, re, redesigned by Colts and his partner, John Morrison.
1: If you were to take someone, if you were to take a golfer who had never seen a Harry Colt design, and you took him to a course, what would you tell them to pay attention to as they play? Um, what stands out for you? The par
0: threes obviously stand out. Colts famously rooted his golf courses by looking for par threes first.
1: Oh, is that right? I didn't know yes,
0: that. Yes. Interesting. Um, and that's why... You know, and it's it's a fairly logical process if you think about it because you can use par three you can use par threes to cover broken ground or if you have a ravine or a quarry that you've got to get over then you can do it in par three and then what because you're on a fairway so you you, you, can, you can you can generally tell the par threes um, stand out. but what I would only what I would generally say is that I think. Cole goes down. Cole pretty much clearly goes down as as the greatest show golf courses in, in in the history of of, of the profession. Wow, um, high praise. When, when you when you see his courses, it doesn't matter how interesting or uninteresting the ground is. If there is feature there, he will have found it and used it.
1: Does he use it on one hole, or is he trying to use that feature throughout? You get where I'm going with um, that
0: yeah yeah. I mean he, he'll come back he'll come back to a feature and usually um not quite so much the most remarkable example of, of that I've ever seen actually, not a, not a cult course actually is is um Shore Acres in Chicago where most of the property is kind of dull and flat yes and
1: there's absolutely. just
0: one one and there's just one corner where the the ravines and streams are and he gets so many holes in and out of that corner. Um, he uses the feature really remarkably but yes Colt Colt did that that too there's a very interesting example um, at Le Touquet in France uh, where Frank Ponce and Patrice Weston have been trying to restore Colt and Alison's design over the last five or six years Um, the 17th hole there is I would say a very unsatisfactory hole it's it's a longish power four. Where the the tee shot is fairly level, and then suddenly you have to climb the mountain with your second, with your second shot. Um, and when you know what you know about Colt, you think this is not, 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 not like him. Last time I was there with Frank, he showed me there's a valley to the left-hand side of the hole, which is now choked with trees, but that's where the hole originally was. Um, and it's a much more gentle ascent up to the, up, up, up the greener side. So it's the same green side, same T7 same green, but a completely different different fairway, um, and a much better one. Now they're trying to get permission to go in there and put it back. They're currently having a row with the, uh, the environmentalists, and we'll see if they get permission to. I hope they do.
1: So do you think his his ability to route a course, do you, do you think it related to his... Ability to find the great par threes in the course first and then work around them, or is he looking at features and, and figuring out how to exploit them to the benefit of the golfer?
0: I, I, I think, and you know, I, I've the, the only experience I've had is Azkish. Um but I think he's finding the par threes, and in doing so, he's solving the difficult ground. You know, where, with the bits where it's going to be difficult to get over the, yeah. a, pati- a particular feature because it's broken, because it's a big hill or a big hole or something like that in the way, um, and then then he's he's looking at to how to tie it all together, how to use the rest of the feature, blah 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 blah. I'll, I'll give you a couple, a couple of examples. One is um, his course at Southfield in Oxford, uh, which is not a great golf course. It's a very nice golf course, but not a great not a great course. Um, quite a nice piece of ground. That there's an, a, a quite substantial area um, of dull ground n- near the clubhouse. Um, and the best stuff is right at the far end of the site. And so the ground near the clubhouse he uses up by having back to back par fives at nine and ten, and we, because they cover this this not very interesting ground. Um, and gets him to the, gets him to the good stuff where he can make. More make, make more interesting holes and use more interesting features. Um, another good example is, is St George's Hill. Uh, now, Colt designed St George's Hill in 1912, 13, and he went back in the 20s and designed the second 18. Um, but it's very, very clear that the second 18 was an afterthought. He had no thought when he was building the first course that he would be asked to go back. You can tell that because the the, well, the second 18 is now only a nine a nine hole course. Some of it's been lost, but it, it starts too far from the clubhouse. It it has a few odd length holes. Um, and it, it, it reads in now the existing golf course. There's no way he would have r- rooted the original course as he did if he'd expected to be asked to go back and make them engaging more. Uh, it, it, it's it's quite it's quite intriguing. You you, you can tell because the second course is a little
1: bit awkward. Um, it, it was afterthought. That's kind of interesting. I never really thought of that. Like if you were always just planning a nine-hole course all of your design philosophies would be kind of thrown into that one and then they say, come back and do nine and it's not going to have that same connection or likely won't. It's like reinventing well, the wheel know, a little bit.
0: Well, well you know, if you, if you think about it, Cole, Cole was quite keen on retaining nine, for example. He wasn't obsessed about it, but he was, he was pretty keen on it. You know, golf courses were pretty busy by the, by the, by the 20s and, and having two starting points was, was, was pretty valuable. Um, so, uh, St. George's Hill, for example, he has two starting points for the main course. They're both right in front of the clubhouse, but it's quite steep ground there. And, and the and the, the way he rooted those holes around the clubhouse is is really pretty impressive. Um, the tenth hole, I think, is the best hole on the golf course actually. So I mean, um, but uh, and one of the outstanding par fours in England. But but there just wasn't enough good land around the clubhouse to be able to do that and leave space for another for another course after, which is why the green course, the third course starts about 100, 150 yards away from the clubhouse.
1: Did Mr. Colt have a design style? I mean, are there design elements that he would bring from one course to another other than finding outstanding land locations for par threes? Was there something like that stands out yeah, I mean you can
0: you, you can there there are things you look out for. You uh, lo, most most of his greens are elevated; they're on plateaus.
1: Was that was that irrigation or was that by design?
0: Yeah, I mean, I mean clearly, clearly he was or
1: drainage. I so if that. you go back
0: if you if you go back to the nineteenth century uh, and the and the old links, then you have lots of punch ball greens, greens and hollows, which are there to collect water so, the, so that the ground will remain playable in the summer. Uh, and Colt's going into it the other way. Uh, he, he by 1910 he has said we need to, we must have water laid on for the grains, not automatic irrigation. Obviously, it would just be little uh, little pipes that you can attach a hose to, and the green greenkeeper can water them by hand. Uh, but but nonetheless, he's saying that we must be a water supply laid on for the greens. Uh, and, then, and therefore he's not needing to collect water he's needing to get water off the way that we, the way they got, the way that golf architects do now um, so that's clearly a, something that he started which has be, which has become commonplace in the golf industry so he likes plateau greens he's not afraid to bunker all the way across a fairway but it's not in the Victorian staple jazz style he, he's he, he loves the diagonal cross bunker.
1: Um, so that's a trait and, and, that you can find on some of his courses.
0: Uh, for sure, you know you see you see you see diagonal cross bunkers quite a lot on golf courses. And then when you go into, you go into the, into the details of it, you find, for example, that his bunkers are always sand faced; they're never grass faced. Interesting. Um he actually goes through quite a lot of different bunker styles during his career before world, One, world war 1 he talks about bunkers that are torn out of the ground so if you if you imagine uh, if you imagine a natural upslope in the ground and then you imagine a giant hand or a digger or whatever coming in and ripping ripping the ground away then what's what, what's left is your bunker so that's that's well uh, early on then in the 20s he starts to get a more formalized bunker edge and that, I think, is a lot to do with the way that he was, his courses were built in the 20s. Um, Franks Harris, the contractor he was involved with, built a lot of golf courses were called in the 20s. And there is a, a similarity of styles between a lot of those. Uh, and then, towards the very end of his career, he goes back to very random, very lazy edges um, at... Ham Manor in, in in the south of England, which is one of his very last courses. It has very very complex almost less edges.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's interesting.
0: R- a rough guide to cold bunkers, but yeah, you know, obviously across three hundred and eighty courses or whatever, you get you get a, fra- a, fair, a fair variety. But that's that that's kind of a reasonable summary.
1: Yeah, that's but it's really neat to see that you could be playing a course and kind of identify early work versus later. Uh, you know. I just think that transition from Bunker style is pretty fascinating to me. Mm. Mm. Yeah, um, yeah. Let's jump into Harry Colt's work in the United States. Uh, I think you mentioned it a little bit, but what first took Colt to the new world?
0: So Colt made three visits to North, to North America. He was he, he came over in 1911, 1913, and 1914. He had plans to come over in 1919 after the war. But for whatever reason, he didn't. He, he was cancelled, and his partner, Hugh Allison, came across me. And obviously, you know, yeah. Allison was based in the States most of the 20s. I mean, I, I presume you've seen Tony Gold's book on Colton Allison in, the, in, in, the, yes. in North America. Yes, I have. Um, that's actually a, a really a pretty good study of what, of what they did. Um, we're finding evidence of things that things that he did. That were not necessarily not necessarily recorded. So, for example, we know that he was in 1913. He did um, uh, basically a new course design for Royal Ottawa in Canada, which was not 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 basically not 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 executed. We don't quite know why. Yeah. Uh, same visit, he designed. It doesn't exist anymore. But the Burness course in Calgary which is really really quite fascinating. And, I, and I've just recently proved that he, he did that, um, which is really fascinating because we didn't actually know that he'd be any further west than, toro- west than Toronto. <clears throat> There's quite a lot of ad around Burness. Uh, and we've been able to trace down trace down some uh, newspaper material from the, from the time as well that proves he was there. He worked at Royal Montreal, which is not that one. He was very busy in Canada. I mean, obviously, he... he everyone knows everyone was Toronto and Hamilton which are the two famous courses that he did um but he did quite a lot of the, other visits as well
1: but was it the Canadian his, tour that brought him over
0: no I, I think he he definitely came over in the first instance um to go to Detroit uh, and it's significant that when Hugh Allison based himself in the states for the 20s his office was in Detroit um so that was obviously important, an important city for them in terms of contacts and business acquaintances. Obviously, in he, he's, in 1913, he was he was at Old Elm and Pine Valley, and various other places. Yeah. Um, he was there. We don't. He was there for about two months in 1914, about three or four months in 1913. So they were quite long visits. You know, it wasn't just to get a ship over, visit a couple of golf courses, and go home a couple of weeks later. Oh. And certainly, again in thirteen and fourteen, Laura, his wife, traveled with him as well. So,
1: let's jump into this a little bit on that on that trip to uh, what was it nineteen thirteen, uh, specifically to Old mm. Elm. Uh, there is a little bit of a, a thing of legend about the story of his design at Old Elm and a quote unquote forced partnership. I was wondering if you could share that story and how much of that story between Ross and Colt is true versus myth.
0: I, I don't think it was a forced. I don't think it was a forced partnership exactly. Um,
1: the, the story is, you know, I'm sure you know this. They lock them in a room and make them work together.
0: No, I don't think. I don't think that's true. Yeah, um, but because there's no doubt that all of them um, is, is Colt,
1: Design, and
0: built by Ross. Yeah, Colt wrote an, a letter, a note to the club, um, in which uh, after he'd had conversations with Ross. Um, saying that he had a lot of faith in him, thought his ideas were, were sound, and they should trust trust his, his judgment. Um, he unfortunately called him Douglas Ross rather than Donald.
1: I'm sure Donnie loved that.
0: Well, well I, I don't suppose he knew because yeah, he a probably left the, the club. It, right, yeah. But, but what, it, what, what it says about, about Colt's... Um, attention detail i don't quite know no, but <laughs> no,
1: no, no. we all no have no typos name. right we i mean that's why you have Anna, we, we Adam, all right get,
0: we all get names wrong from time to that's
1: time that's right which,
0: yeah. I, i'm i'm used to being called andrew or andy or alan or all sorts of things
1: so. yeah so yeah so they you don't think it was as contentious as make it, people make it out to be
0: no i don't i, I don't think so um it was always called gig that's the, that's the, um, the really the, the important thing Ross was Ross was there basically as a construction manager.
1: Do we know how old Elm even you know heard about Harry Colt? I mean that's that's the fascinating thing to me when we see um, architects coming over um, from Scotland and England into the United States is there is their reputation preceding them? I mean are the- yeah go ahead.
0: There was a there was a lot of uh, of commerce between England and, uh, or Britain and America in those t- in those times. Especially. Colt was across there three times before the war. Um, people like MacDonald and Wilson were in the in the UK quite a lot. There's an interesting clipping I have from an, an American newspaper in which Colt, having just arrived on off. The, off the boat, is interviewed and he says, "Oh yeah, I was at I was at Sandwich a couple of weeks ago doing doing a bit of um, work on the golf course, and Francis Weimer was was there practicing. That you was know, either the Open or the Amateur. But it would be it would be obviously after he won um, Brookline,
1: yeah.
0: Uh, and he said, yeah, I think he's got a very good chance.' Blah 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 blah. Um, so you know, he he knew we met, he knew he, he knew McDonald." Uh, th- th- those guys all near each other,
1: and you think vice versa. I mean, you think the name Oh Colt yeah. was holding some real weight in the United States from a design. Oh, standpoint. For, oh for sure. Yeah. Oh, for sure.
0: I mean, there's there's um there's an advert I have from about 1915 or 16 from an American paper for certain seeds. There's a large ad- large advert, and in the bottom corner it said. With whom is associated Mr. H. S. Colt, the famous golf architect? You know, so his name was was regarded as something to, something to be worth dropping. for sure.
1: Okay, that's uh, yeah, that's good to know. Um, that trip to America, that specific one, uh, is well known for what many many people now consider the greatest golf course in the world, Pine Valley. Do we know how Harry Colt connected with George Crump?
0: Um, we don't know specifically, but uh, but again, you know, Crump had. This is, what, what I think we need to understand is that, the, is, is that the the American amateur elite and the British amateur elite they weren't the same, but they knew each other very well. Right. Um, and you know, Crump had done a lot of research before he started work, started work on Pine Valley. Um, obviously, Donald did a hell of a lot of research before he started work at NGLA. Um, they were you know people people going back and forth across the Atlantic a lot, um, and the the shooting, the shooting manifests are pretty much all there online. There's there, there, there's a paper to be done about the interactions between the American and British golfing, golfing fraternities, I think.
1: Yeah, I, I think you're right. Uh, what do we know about the relationship with Crump and, and Colt when it came to their work? I, I don't know if there's an easy way to ask this question, so I'll just ask it. How much of Pine Valley do you attribute to Harry Colt versus Crump and other associates and architects that came in to, you know, put in their collective views on the course?
0: It's difficult to say, and I'm not a Pine Valley expert. That's the first thing. Um, But what I, what I would say is that Colt himself felt, clearly felt that he, that what he'd done there was very important. Um, In his adverts in the 1920s, he listed Pine Valley as one as one of his courses. Yeah, um, and you know we were talking about him being a a, a very understated uh, an understated Englishman, not one to blow his own trumpet. Blah blah blah. It's unthinkable to me that he would have done that unless he really felt that he'd be been key to the success of the success of that place.
1: Have you been to Pine Valley? Have you studied it at all by chance?
0: No, I have. I haven't. I haven't. I keep. Uh, I have. Steve Smyers is a very good friend of mine, I, and and Steve is uh, Steve has basically given me an open invitation. I just haven't the right place at the right time.
1: <laughs> yeah, I, I've I've been lucky enough to play it five times, and I would say to that point of the earlier point you made about the par threes, the par threes at at Pine Valley are all extremely memorable.
0: The fifth hole is is, is the one that, is, is the one thing that's known to be Colts there. Oh, um, it is, and that's a,
1: that is what I mean. That might be the best. Hole in the course, you might. Some might argue. Solve
0: solve the routing problem of how to get it from four from four. Yeah, over the creek. Up, up yes. by getting over the creek, and,
1: and then you have that you know, routine. And the next hole, and oh, that makes complete sense. It's kind of a bloody hard it's, hole. It's, <laughs> well,
0: yeah, and I, I, I mean it's kind of ironic that you know, uh, obviously architects have used path three to solve routing problems all the way through the the history of the, of the, of the profession. You know, you take. Sixteen Cyprus is another another example that's uh, an insanely hard hole. You
1: know? <laughs> yeah.
0: Um, and, and, yeah, and yeah, maybe you now just to find to find Byron valleys.
1: Are there any? Could there be any? I think maybe that's a better way to put it. Could there be any undiscovered Harry Colt designs in North America? I mean, you just basically proved one just recently. Are there any efforts to explore? Any other lost designs of his work?
0: Yeah, there's a, there's a course in Canada, um, in Montreal, that we have a newspaper report from 1924 when it was hosting an event that said Colt designed it, uh, and I'm trying desperately to find some more more proof, of, more proof of that. Yeah, because the, the club has no idea. Um, I'm just. I, I just sent an email um yesterday in fact to some people trying to trying to find out a club over here um, uh we 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 find new courses on average one, to one you know a few every year
1: really yeah few, that's pretty I mean that's remarkable to be quite frank yeah, especially if it, you find it, one over it, there, it, I would think it would be quite easy to track that but you know, I get that things get lost over time. we've had in some cases, two wars between um, the work, his work. Right.
0: And, you know, Clubhouse Fires and...
1: Yeah, that was uh, that was quite common.
0: A lot of the time, the architects... It sounds strange, but there hasn't always been this interesting golf architecture, you know.
1: It's true. Yeah, absolutely. In many ways, it's more of a modern uh, invention of actually caring about our history. I think, obviously, it, it occurred before in time, but... I think there is a, a point where we are today where we're starting to treasure those who have come before us and trying to learn the lessons that he taught us hundreds of years ago or a hundred years ago. Yes.
0: No, no there's, there's no doubt it's true. No doubt it's true.
1: Adam, what stands out from Colt's trip to America to you? He, he clearly left us his indelible mark uh, on the small amount of time that he was here. What does he leave us with?
0: Well, I would love to have seen his his course come to Detroit. Um, obviously, Allison rebuilds. Well, I think they moved. I think they moved in the twenties. But anyway, Allison built them a new course in the twenties, and course courses ceased to exist. Um, but Harry Varden, after his um, tour through through the states, 1920 um, that, that tour, uh, it, right? Yeah. No, no, I think
1: 1913.
0: Oh, okay. Um, said that he felt the country club of Detroit was one of the very best in the country. Oh. Um, so I would like to have seen that. Um, I think although that was a very, very fine golf course, obviously with Colts influence on Pan Valley has uh, yeah has has to be you know can't can't be ignored. And uh, and in and in Canada, you know in Canada too, you know. But I think in Australia they have a phrase. They call it the cultural cringe. Right? In the, the Australians, you know, are always being told it's it's not, you always know, in a very cultured country. You, you know, you never not, not produce any culture of interest. Blah blah blah. I think there was a, I think there was a little bit of that going on in the states at that, at that time. You know, they, they were looking across to Britain, where golf had come from, and saying we, we we need to we need to get we need to get with these Brits, um, and that's why Colt Fowler. Not Mackenzie, really, because that was later. Uh, but Colt Fowler, Willie Park, and and the various other people who came across in the early in, in the early
1: part of the twentieth century. Yeah, I, Harry Varden's a great example of that. I mean, just from the spirit of golf being the trailblazer and lighting a fire in 1900 on that tour that really yes. sparks golf across the United yes. States. Yes, for sure. Um,
0: and and so the, I, I think the influence of Britain on America at that stage um, is greater than people, than people really understand at the moment.
1: Yeah, that's, I I mean, this is probably obvious, but do we know if, if his work, and obviously I I think it's an obvious one to answer when you think of the words, you know, Pine Valley, but do we know of how his work inspired architects in the new world?
0: Oh, well, we, we know, we know, for example, that Stanley Thompson in Canada, uh, regarded Colt as his, as his masters at end of his days I mean you know the, the um the Thompsons were connected with Toronto Golf Club, so Stanley saw Colt's work close up, and that was basically what inspired him to to get to get into the profession the The rest of it you know we 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 can see a lot of references you know we um we we see telling house writing about Colt we see this that and the other um and we and we know that there was a lot of respect for Colt. On individ, just trying to get trying to break it down to the individual architects is harder, obviously. Um, but you know, so we we know we we know we know about Thompson. Um, we don't know so much about the others.
1: So let's return to uh, let's return to the old world. Um, this is years later after that trip, uh, Harry Colt amongst many things, basically building a profession out of golf course architecture, uh, forms the very first power architectural firm of Colt McKinsey and Allison. These three master designers, they partner, um, for a very short time, specifically when I'm talking about McKinsey, but their influence is still felt today. How did these men come together?
0: Um, it's a good question. I I think the answer is they didn't that much. Yeah. Um, Although Colt and Mackenzie were clearly friends, Mackenzie um, became a the Royal Nation later, um, so I, I, I guess they would have seen each other at R N A meetings. But I don't think they were. Uh, they were. A, a, I don't think it was a particularly uh, a talented firm. Uh, we know that Mackenzie did some business to Colt. We have records of him going going to look at the Eden Course and Standards for example. But we also have records of them bidding against each other, whether it's theoretically partners.
1: Yeah, absolutely, I guess that's the question: is it is is it a, a a true partnership in the terms of how we might look at a law firm, which it's, it appears it is not, or is it really a partnership of a marketing sense? I, I think it's
0: I think it's it's a partnership of convenience. Yeah, because
1: um, we don't have any examples of or maybe we do 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 we have any examples probably a better way to phrase that do we have any examples of two of them or three of them working together on one project much like you had ross and colt working on old elm
0: not closely yeah um we, we we know for example that colt and allison worked together very closely colt and morrison worked together very closely um colt Traveled less after World War One, but you know he was fifty by the time World War One ended, and he. Um, so the stuff that was done in Europe in the twenties, um, in Germany especially, Morrison did quite a lot of. Um, obviously, Allison went to Japan. Um, Allison was in, was in the states. A sure twen- bunch of the twenties. Um, Allison built. The royal, the royal Head course in the Netherlands before the World before World War Two, and I proved recently that um, he'd been the lead on on, on him out in nineteen thirty. Yeah, Allison um, does
1: not get his due in history of the three men. No,
0: he I, no, and he's a very interesting guy as well. I, I've done quite a lot of research on you. Um, I. I I don't think there's any any particular market for an individual book on Arsene. But but yeah, I, I think he's an interesting guy and who doesn't get his credits.
1: You know, on our last podcast, this is really a question really from uh, Tully here. Uh, we did, or I should say, what, two podcasts ago, we did The History of mm-hmm. Alistair McKenzie. Uh, one of the questions <laughs> that we were pondering is, do we know if Harry Colt had any influence on Dr. McKenzie, his philosophies and design? I mean, obviously, he overlooked his work in what 1908 was. That what the year yep. was. Um, he, he approved of it, but yeah, is there any overlap in design? Uh, I'm not
0: sure there's very much. I, really, I, yeah, Mackenzie. I, I think yeah, this is it's very it's very easy and probably not not very useful to descend into sort of modern modern cliches. Mackenzie was much more obviously a modern type A personality. You know, he was he he he, he was a bit the bit the big I am, um, and you, know, you can you can see why some of the letters he wrote to golf clubs that wanted to hired him and then decided to dig up out of his work or whatever. Um, he he didn't think much of that at all. <laughs> yeah, that didn't that didn't go over well. No, quite, and so. I think it's – I don't – I think McKenzie was pretty much much his own man. And any influence, anyone had it was fairly subconscious.
1: Yeah. You know, it's a question that's just out there, right? Because they had those – they overlapped over that period of time. They had this – I guess you'd call it a marketing partnership. And then you had the oversight in 1908. It's a wonderful Mm -hmm. overlap between the two men. I actually, I think it'd be a great yeah, yeah. book. You could call it "The Barrister and the and the Surgeon." That's your next <laughs> book, <laughs> "The Barrister and the Surgeon." I mean, both of them have these fascinating stories. Both give up prominent careers uh, that would be, you know, ideal in the highest level of society: uh, a barrister, lawyer, and a surgeon, doctor. And they give that up to become golf course architects.
0: I, I, I think. I mean, we're 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 straying off the subject here. Yeah, but I although obviously McKenzie was a doctor and reasonably successful one, he he basically inherited his profession from his father. Yeah, um, as in as indeed called it, from his, and you sort of wonder if either was ever really passionate about medicine or law. Um, or if it's just what you know doing what they're expected to do by father? You
1: know? Yeah, and that was quite common, right, in that time. Oh, yeah, uh, I'm course. a doctor. Of you're course. going to be a doctor. <laughs> it's the overbearing yes. father saying, "This is you know what we're what you do. Follow follow yes, my footsteps." Mm-hmm. So Harry Cole he lived a long life, right? He died uh, just before I think yes. Christmas, 1951. How late yes, in life he was, was he still practicing golf design?
0: Uh, very very little after world war Two. he was extremely deaf uh and his wife laura died in 1947 uh i think if you read um fred, H- fred hortry's book on cult um one of the best things about that is that fred's got an archive of letters which were basically between morrison and allison from 1945 onwards um and in those they sort of say, Well, you know, well I saw old Harry, he's you know bloody deaf, blah blah blah, he's not up to much with and more Alison in particular wanted Colt to be a little bit more active if only as a figurehead. Um because he knew that he's a reputational development getting work. But Colt just didn't feel like to it, you know, he 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 enough, I think.
1: Oh, and that was a tough time. I mean, in 1951, 1950 specifically, uh, the United Kingdom was still rebuilding from the, you know the Great War or the Second Great War, to be specific.
0: Yeah, and obviously World War II left Britain pretty much completely bankrupt. Yeah, you know, there was nobody there had was, any money. There was, yeah. no, there was no money for golf.
1: Well, let's jump into this. I mean, I think this is the logical question. I mean, and I'm looking at a lot of the architects we've already covered, but many of the great golf course architects suffered financial ruin. Did the outbreak of World War Two and the following depression? How did those horrific times treat Mister Colt? I'm just from a financial standpoint. Was he was he okay in the end? Colt was all right. You know, he's
0: he, he had his um he he, he and Laura moved at the end of World War One out when when he finally severed his connection with Slindondale. They moved west into Berkshire to a village called East Hendred, um, which. The reason they went there, was, was that the big house in the village was um, a Catholic was a Catholic one, and so there was a Catholic church and a Church of England church in the in the village. So it was very convenient for them, given that Laura was Catholic and Harry was Church of England. So they moved to East Hendred and, and, and they had a beautiful a beautiful old house, uh, which I've seen, uh, which after, later actually belonged to. Um, Rod Jenkins, who was a politician in the sixties and seventies and eighties, I can't exactly remember how much Colt left, but he was comfortable. He was very comfortable until the end. Um, I I met, I actually, this is the, one of the, one of the, those the remarkable stories. Um, there's a really good local museum in East Hendred, and I made contact with them a couple of years ago um, to see if they could help me with my research. And I got a call from them at one point saying. We've got somebody you might like to talk to, and it was it was this lady who'd known Colt. She was 97, 98, as sharp as a needle, and Colt. Um, she was the she, she was the daughter of the church, the, the, church and the priest in the village, um, and so I had known Colt very well. Um, you know, Colt, you said, Colt, Colt. Had his play people uh, tennis court for her and her, her, and her sister in, in, in the garden of their house. Um, he used to take them shopping in Oxford. He used to take them when he went to play golf. Um, he would take this woman and her sister to get out of a parent's hair. Really, and they'd walk around. The, they'd walk around the golf courses while he was playing. Oh, uh, it was absolutely remarkable.
1: Did she know who he was then? I mean, how important he was to the, you know game of golf? No. He was just a no, neighborly did. gentleman.
0: Yeah, yeah. He was just a neighbor. Imagine yeah, but, that. But, but, not, but nonetheless, it was pretty remarkable.
1: Unbelievable. Um, right.
0: And so we, we, we know we, we know that he had a chauffeur um, even quite late on. Um, obviously they had staff in the house as well. So they were, they were doing fine. Alison and Morrison, on the, on the other hand, um, Alison, when he died, left next to nothing. Um, Morrison was not not. Morrison had been quite well off. Yeah, uh,
1: McKenzie family, too. right? McKenzie does Yeah, McKen- McKenzie
0: dies in poverty. Or... Basically, yeah, yeah, it's terrible. Um, and that's and and, and that's in the thir- well, in the thirties and depression, I suppose. So I mean, it's different, it's different sort of um, situation. But well yeah, I guess the, exactly the same. I,
1: I feel like our time today, we only touched on the surface of the man. Behind the greatest golf courses the world has ever seen, what do you take away from Harry Colt's life? What's it mean to you? For
0: me, he's the man who who, who created the profession more than anything else. Everything we know about golf course architecture really comes from Colt. As as a business. As a profession.
1: it's no um, longer a pro and, walking out in a field and putting down a stake and moving on. You know to another well, it, course, it, it,
0: but it's not. It's not even that. You know the, some 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 of the old some of the later old Tom work he spent quite a bit of time on. Sure. But it wasn't ever his. It wasn't ever his main thing. You know, his main thing was being old Tom Morris. Um, with, with, but with with, with Colt. He he is his golf course, as you know. Um, the, the the title of my book um, is More, "More Enduring Brass," which is a tr- translation of of, of um, one of the odes of Horace, uh, which Darwin used in his um, article about the 1951 Open at Port Rush He said the the course the, the course in its present form was created by Mister H S Galt. Who has thereby built himself a monument more enduring than brass?
1: Um, and, that, and I think that there's that, – nobody <sighs> ever said it better than Darwin.
0: <laughs> no, 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 nobody ever did. There's a there's a very famous um, line about Sir Christopher Wren, uh, about Sir Christopher Wren who built St Paul's Cathedral. Um, in the cathedral, which says, "See si monumentum requiris, If you seek his monument, look around you. Um, and that's kind of how I feel about Cole. When you go to St. George's Hill, or you or you go anywhere he was, you know, you look around and you think, Harry did that.
1: Yeah, yeah, right. As a golfer, maybe somebody who wants to explore the life of Harry Cole before your book comes out, how can how can the golfer feel his presence today? What's the best way to uh, to <laughs> Get an idea of Harry Cold. Publish your book. Well, yeah. (laughs) That was supposed to be Um, subliminal. It didn't come off.
0: Swindley Forest is a pretty good... Is a pretty good... uh, Relic. It's a pretty good place to go. Um, St. George's Head is a pretty good place to go. um, Sitting down on on the New is a pretty good place to go. There's, There's a lot of stuff most of it is altered in one form or another but there's quite a lot of it is just trying to get called back um, and to a greater or lesser extent the, the, what, one, of the things that, one of the things that pleases me is that people are coming to understand what heritage means and to appreciate it which you know, for, for me at least is, is, is a great thing
1: before we end, let me just ask you this. What is it like being involved with restoring some of his great work? I mean, on a personal level, uh, you've been involved with the restoration of his projects, following in his footsteps, if you will, um, walking in his footsteps. What What is that like personally for you?
0: it's pretty exciting I mean the, the, the one um, I, I've done quite a bit of work with my friend Tim Lobb on researching some of the cult's courses because Tim has a number of cult, cult courses in his portfolio um, and so I've been sort of Tim's historical advisor on, on, on a number of those projects um, Tim has been working at St. George's Hill for a few years uh, the one thing I would love love them to do above all else is to put the famous bunkers on the par three eighth um back as uh called it's called had them that you know, that that's the, the thing for me
1: yeah that yeah i I, yeah. I can i totally understand that um adam thank you so much for joining me on the talking golf history podcast I, i'd love to have you back i need to have you back when we release the book we'll come back and talk about yes yes absolutely
0: and i'll come I'm talk about anything. I'm always happy to talk. Perfect. Thank, Thank you, you very so much.
1: much. Uh, folks, in the pantheon of the greatest, it's impossible not to mention the contributions of the great Harry Colt when it comes to golf design. He was in many ways the father of modern golf course architecture and gave birth to some of the greatest golf courses this world has ever known. Coming into this podcast, I was ashamed at how little I knew about Harry Colt. But this is why we started the show to learn from others, to appreciate those who came before us, and shine a light on the accomplishments of our golfing forefathers. Yours in golf history, this is Connor T. Lewis.